0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies, where I take a movie off of my Blu-ray shelf and go into a deep dive, sometimes with guests. Today, it's just going to be us. I hope that's all right. We are starting a new month, which means a new theme, and we are looking at May releases, movies that came out in the month of May. We have a variety of different kinds of movies, some of them a little more summer blockbuster than others, some of them a mix between blockbuster and classics, some of them are just flat-out classics. I think they're all classics in their own right. And we are starting with a movie that actually just passed an anniversary. It came out 13 years ago, just this week... Marvel's 2008 landmark film, Iron Man, not just one of the most notable films in the superhero genre, but especially notable for launching the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which we just got a whole bunch of new information about this week. It has continued past the character of Iron Man and is now well into its second decade. We're going to be looking at the making of the film, the origins of the character, and the huge effect that it had on the superhero genre and the movie business in general. But before we do that, I'd like to thank you for watching us. If you're watching, Here on YouTube and listening to us if you're an audio subscriber. Even though the show has moved to my YouTube channel, I am very proud to be partnered with the Schmodown Entertainment Network and Skybound for this podcast. If you haven't checked out SEN lately, do so right now because the Schmodown season is in full effect, huge belt matches going down, live events, you name it. And if you're watching the show on YouTube, I would love if you would also become an audio subscriber. That is a big way to help this show grow. We're trying to grow it out across a lot of different paths right now and helping us to grow as far as subscribers and listeners on the audio side is a big help as well. Decades before hitting the big screen, Iron Man was created back in 1963, at a time when politicians like President Dwight D. Eisenhower had already warned about our growing military industrial complex, and when the US was at the beginning stages of an over-decade-long involvement in Vietnam. Iron Man's superhero origin involves Tony Stark, a wealthy industrialist who is critically injured in Vietnam and has shrapnel encroaching toward his heart. In order to save his life and in order to become a superhero, he wears a suit of armor that keeps the shrapnel away from his heart and, of course, gives him super abilities. Stan Lee, who created the character along with Larry Lieber, Don Heck, and Jack Kirby, talks about the origins of Iron Man and it basically being a character that he was daring his young audience not to be able to relate to. I thought it would be fun to take the kind of character that nobody would like, none of our readers would like, and shove them down their throat and make them like them. Iron Man would go on to be a founding member of Marvel's superhero team, the Avengers, and would get his own comic book in 1968, which ran for nearly three decades. He also appeared in 1966's syndicated show, The Marvel Superheroes, where he got 13 short animated segments alongside heroes Captain America, The Incredible Hulk, and Namor the Submariner. Iron Man appeared again in his own animated series that ran for two 13-episode syndicated seasons in the mid-90s, but he was never one of Marvel's most popular characters outside the world of comic readers. In the late 1990s and 2000s, several Marvel characters were able to make the jump to the big screen, including Blade, the X-Men, the Punisher, the Incredible Hulk, Ghost Rider, Daredevil. Some of those were successes, some of those were not. But for some reason, Iron Man, which had been stuck in development hell for years, never made the jump to the big screen, and the rights reverted back to Marvel in 2005. At the same time, Marvel Studios had decided to try making movies about their own characters instead of licensing them and co-producing the movies with other studios. They would lose control over that, and as I mentioned, there were mixed results with that approach. So when Marvel Studios was deciding to make their own movies, they had to look at the characters to which they currently owned the rights. Iron Man was the most prestigious one they really had on hand that had not had a movie made of him at some point. The decision was made that the first Marvel Studios produced Produced film would be Iron Man, and in 2007, Marvel Studios named as the president of production a 33-year-old who had worked his way up from an assistant to Lauren Shuler Donner, to an associate producer on the first X-Men film, to a producer in some capacity on every single Marvel film that had been made to that point. That president of production's name was Kevin Feige. There was a lot of pressure involved because it was all on us, but I was very comfortable with that because if we were to fail, at least we would have failed with the best intentions. Director John Favreau was brought onto the project in 2006, and this would be Favreau's fourth film as a director. He had already made the movies made, Elf, and Zathura, and even though they were all critically well-received, Zathura had been a box office disappointment. So even though Favreau had made critical and box office hits in the past, it still seemed a little bit risky for Marvel to hand the reins over to a director who had yet to be proven on the blockbuster scale. But keep in mind at this time, the Marvel brand was not exactly associated with prestige. There had been some early hits, like Blade and Blade 2, the first two X-Men films, and the first two Spider-Man films. But in the years preceding Iron Man's release, there had been a bit of a dip in quality and reception of the movies. When you look at the slate of Marvel films, all produced with other studios that preceded the release of Iron Man, they don't exactly constitute a greatest hits list. You have 2005's Elektra and Fantastic Four, 2006's X-Men The Last Stand, and 2007's Ghost Rider, Spider-Man 3, and Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. While some of these were box office successes, none of them left moviegoers and especially comic book fans very optimistic that there was a comic book movie renaissance in the near future. When you throw in the relatively little name recognition that Iron Man had amongst the general public, Marvel's 140 plus million dollar gamble looked like even more of a risk. And it looked to be even more of a long shot when it was announced that Marvel had found their leading man. I gotta tell you, is that thing wrong? You're never gonna get me in the sack with that attitude. Crudite? early in his career robert downey jr had been one of the hottest actors in hollywood he had an oscar nomination for best actor under his belt before the age of 30 and things seemed to be looking up but personal demons plagued him throughout the 1990s and by the turn of the century many in hollywood had written robert downey jr off as unemployable Downey Jr. began to rebuild his career from scratch in movies like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Shane Black, A Scanner Darkly with Richard Linklater, and Zodiac with David Fincher, but I think it's safe to say that nobody really saw him as the face of a superhero franchise. According to Robert Downey Jr., this was really a race against time because he wanted to take one of these roles before time took its toll on his body. I thought if I'm ever gonna do a movie like this, I've gotta do it quick before it's not embarrassing. I feel like I've got a, as- five to seven year window. And then if if it goes past that, then I'm sure um, uh, all the optical stuff and CGI will have advanced. John Favreau has said many times that he fought hard for Robert Downey Jr. to be cast as Iron Man. And Marvel reportedly turned him down many times over, saying at one point that there is no amount of money in the world that would allow Robert Downey Jr. to get the role of Iron Man. But in the end, Favreau was so passionate and Robert Downey Jr. was so seemingly perfect for the part that Marvel relented and Robert Downey Jr. was cast in the lead role. And it was at this point that Jon Favreau began to suspect that this gamble was was going to pay off. The day I knew everything was going to be okay was the day that Robert Downey Jr. was attached to play Iron Man. Alongside Robert Downey Jr. for The Good Guys were Terrence Howard as James Rhodey Rhodes, Tony's best friend and an Air Force colonel, and Gwyneth Paltrow as Pepper Potts, Tony's long-suffering assistant slash possible love interest. For Paltrow, this was her first foray into superhero filmmaking, and it was on the back of a pretty upfront pitch from Robert Downey Jr. himself. When I was talking to Robert before I accepted the role, he said, you know, aren't you tired of doing these like great little movies that no one sees? Don't you want to be in a movie that people see? For Terrence Howard, this would be his first and last adventure in the MCU, despite a promise that he would don the armor in Iron Man 2. Next time, baby. The real reasons behind Terrence Howard's departure are kind of sketchy. Some people say it's because he was the highest paid cast member, believe it or not, in Iron Man and that he refused to take a pay cut for Iron Man 2 when they approached him to reduce his salary. Others have said that this is a smokescreen to hide difficult behavior on set. Whatever the reality is, Howard would be replaced by Don Cheadle as Rhodes for the rest of the MCU, which makes this clip from the making of documentary of this movie a little hilarious in retrospect. And as we sort of look forward to see this as a chapter in a series of films, if we could be so lucky, uh, I think that, that following Terrence Howard as he becomes a superhero in his own right is something that I'm really curious and interested in an unconventional hero often needs an unconventional villain and as obadiah Stane, tony stark's mentor but eventual enemy jeff bridges joined the cast he's not exactly the first face you think of when you think of a supervillain, but bridges dug the part and despite the movie's size he actually felt that this took him back to his roots of working on smaller productions the spirit in which it was shot and the way we did it was like you might do a uh, a small independent art film <laughs> in a funny sort of way. In fact, Jeff Bridges and Robert Downey Jr. had more control over the finished product than they had even anticipated, as Bridges tells Matthew McConaughey in this actor's roundtable that was hosted by Variety. The script's not right, you know, many times. I don't know how many, you know, maybe 10, 12, 15 times. We'd show up for the day's work not knowing what we were going to shoot, and we're in my trailer trying to figure out our lines, man, you know. on the day. On the day. A lot of times we talk about movies that should work but don't. But I think that Iron Man is an example of a movie that 100% should not have worked but did. You have a director who's unproven with a movie at this scale. You have an actor who's considered a gamble by everybody in Hollywood. You have a script that's not ready and you have a genre that seems to be on its last legs. Everything was going against Iron Man and yet this movie became the movie that launched the defining cinematic event at least of the early 21st century in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Let's break down why this movie works so well by diving into the movie itself. And from the very opening strings of Back in Black that opened this movie, from the very first scene, it's obvious why this movie worked. We start the story really in the middle of the action, and yet we don't need exposition to understand who Tony Stark is. It's all right there in Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. Is it true you went 12 for 12 with last year's maximum cover model? That is an excellent question. March and I had a scheduling conflict, but fortunately the Christmas cover was twins. Tony is captured in what's essentially the cold open for the movie, and then we rewind a little bit to get a little character development and meet some other members of the cast. We also get a scene that shows us what Tony Stark's mentality at the beginning of this movie is, and how he justifies being an arms dealer in a world that's being torn apart by violence. It's an imperfect world, but it's the only one we've got. I guarantee you the day weapons are no longer needed to keep the peace, I'll start making bricks and beans for baby hospitals. I harp a lot on storytelling, and particularly bad storytelling. And when you look at Tony Stark, his arc in this movie and his arc throughout the MCU, it's my biggest refutation when people say that blockbuster filmmaking is dumb or that you should just turn off your brain. Because here we have huge films, this one in particular, that are big special effects extravaganzas and yet give us a character who is is human and a story that is relatable. The Tony Stark that we meet at the beginning of this movie is a manufacturer of weapons of mass destruction who is also in mass denial. He's hiding the reality behind this aura of bravado and booze. I prefer the weapon you only have to fire once. That's how dad did it. That's how America does it. And it's worked out pretty well so far. But when he's captured, Tony has to come face to face with the destruction that his weapons really cause throughout the world. He says, welcome Tony Stark, the most famous mass murderer." in the history of America. When people talk about the great characters in the MCU, I feel like Sean Tube's Ho Jensen, who is the person who saves Tony Stark's life and really sets him on the path that would deliver him all the way to Avengers Endgame, is often overlooked. It's such a compassionate performance, and the character itself could have been a stock character, could have been forgettable. But I love that we have this person who's in Tony Stark's life for a matter of months, but is a person who radically changes his entire worldview, who makes him understand the value of sacrifice, the value of one man's life, and the value of making your life count. These are all things that Tony Stark would take forward from this movie to the end of his life in Avengers Endgame. Thank you for saving me. Don't waste that. Don't waste your life. Tube also seemed to be a motivational factor off screen as evidenced by this interview he did for the movie's making of documentary. First time I saw him put on the helmet, I looked at him and I said, Robert, You are Iron Man. For the rest of your life, you are Iron Man. I'd also like to just take a minute and note how badass this scene is, where he puts on the Mark I armor and escapes from captivity. He's essentially walking around in a metal trash can. If you don't have top-of-the-line costume designers, visual effects artists, the music works, the special effects work, it all comes down to making a great scene. If this scene hadn't worked, if it looked ridiculous, then I think people jump off board for the rest of the movie. This is a crucial end of act one scene, and everything about it works. Even by today's standards, it looks great. And I think part of it is that John Favreau was committed to a blend of practical effects and visual effects. Here they work seamlessly to make a great sequence. Tony returns home, and then we get the main conflict of the movie, which is that he announces that he's going to dismantle Stark Industries' weapons division because he's seen just how dangerous the things they make can be. I saw young Americans killed by the very weapons... I created to defend them and protect them. I had become part of a system that is comfortable with zero accountability. This is also where we get one of my favorite flexes of all time, which is Obadiah Stane riding a Segway, smoking a cigar. There's not many actors that could pull this off. Jeff Bridges with the shaved head and the beard is one of those actors. And it just shows how he as a character mixes the mundane and the sinister because Obadiah Stane turns out to be a very evil person who hides all of this under a perfectly maintained aura of geniality and friendship we're iron mongers we make weapons it's my name on the side of the building you know, what we do keeps the world from falling into chaos not based on what i saw Facing resistance and locked out of his own company, Tony decides to refine his suit of armor idea and become a one-man world police, essentially. This is, again, the conflict that drives Iron Man, particularly going into Avengers Age of Ultron, the idea that he himself can save the world. And I love this part of the movie where he's building the suit, he's in the lab, his two robot arm assistants, Dummy and You, give you some unexpected humor. This is, I remember watching the movie where I came under the realization that I was really digging this movie this movie had me it wasn't just a movie that had a great setup but everything is clicking as you get into the middle of this robert downey jr's performance the script all of it really works the more you go into the film for lack of a better option dummy is still on fire safety if you douse me again and i'm not on fire i'm donating you to city college There's also an interesting look in the special features of this disc about how the flying in particular when Tony is testing his boots worked because Favreau felt that flying Robert Downey Jr. around on wires if they were secured to his waist or at some kind of harness around his chest would just look like a guy flying around on wires. So they developed a rig where Robert Downey Jr.'s balance was at his feet. So as he's actually flying around with these boots on his feet trying to get equilibrium, that's also what Robert Downey Jr. was doing in real life. These are the kinds of small touches that a great director will make to add just that much more reality to every film that he works on. Tony puts his first Iron Man suit to the test by liberating a town that has been taken over by his kidnappers using the weapons that Stark Industries manufactures. And we get a great trailer shot, which did make the trailer of Tony walking away from an exploding tank in his armor. What I love about this scene is that it's not just action for action's sake. There is a motivation behind it, and you understand on a character level why Tony is doing this. You feel his rage. You feel his confusion about how these weapons he made could have made their way into the hands of these terrorists. This is a movie that is about something. And that's what sets apart a great blockbuster from an average or a bad blockbuster. It doesn't forget to be about something, which is something that so many movies overlook. There is nothing accept this. There's no art opening. There is no benefit. There is nothing to sign. There's the next mission and nothing else. And adding to the fact that this movie can do several different things, you cap off a great end of act two action sequence with a really strong laugh line. What's going on here? Let's face it, this is not the worst thing you've caught me doing. Following this, Obadiah Stain is revealed to be, and I know this is going to be a shocker, the bad guy and i think it says something about that you have such great actors in the movie that for me the most menacing scene after this is revealed is a smaller scene of pepper Potts and obadiah stain in tony's office where pepper is trying to get some crucial information on a hard drive it's a very slow burn tension-filled scene and yet that scene alone translates obadiah stain's menace more than any scene of him yelling and running around in a suit of armor it's an act three problem that we'll address in just a moment you or a very rare woman. Tony doesn't know how lucky he is. This scene is followed shortly by what is maybe my favorite Jeff Bridges moment, or at least it's competitive with the Segway and the cigar. And it's when Obadiah's rage at not being able to replicate Tony Stark's technology finally boils over. Tony Stark was able to build this in a cave with a box of scraps. The concept of setup and payoff is something we talk about a lot, and again, when a movie does it right, you get a laugh or a gasp or something in an unexpected place. Here, as I mentioned, you have these humorous moments with Tony's robot arms and robot assistants, and these could have just been cheap laughs. After Obadiah steals Tony's arc reactor and he's dying, he makes his way down to the workshop to try to get the backup, but it looks like he's gonna fail just short and isn't able to reach the backup arc reactor that's gonna save his life, until Dummy, the robot arm that couldn't do anything right, saves the day and hands it to him and so here you have an arc for a robot arm in this movie It's these little things that you may not even register the first time you're watching the film that add up to make these movies satisfying. It's not just special effects and quippy lines. It's the fact that you have these moments of setup and payoff. They're they're set up basically like a roller coaster to have dips and dives and turns. And when the roller coaster is built right, if it doesn't steer the train off the tracks or into a wall, then it's just a great ride. And any great ride you're gonna enjoy any number of times, which is what people have done with Iron Man in the decade plus since it came. The most disappointing thing about Iron Man is the third act finale because it's the inevitable big bad guy in armor, little good guy in armor fight. You just have metal on metal. The pre-visualization takes over. It's not terrible, but it reminds me of a movie like Wonder Woman, whose third act stands out because it's so generic in the face of a movie that excels in every other way. Ironic, Tony! Trying to rid the world of weapons! Gave his best one ever! But what follows that and what I think has also helped keep Iron Man in people's minds is an ending that is truly surprising. Tony calls a press conference to throw everyone off the scent of him being Iron Man by providing a cover story that's been provided by the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division, S.H.I.E.L.D. But instead of sticking to that story, he announces that he is indeed the superhero that everyone has just become acquainted with. Truth is... I am Iron Man. And then we immediately smash the credits. I love this ending. It gets a big applause break, or at least it did the first time that I saw it. It energizes you to see what's going to happen next because this is a huge character development that happens five seconds before the movie ends. And it speaks again to how you can tell a character's arc in one movie and then across multiple movies because we've seen how Tony's grown and developed from the beginning of this movie to the end of this movie. And yet in this act, you're also telling the audience that this Tony Stark also has character flaws that need to be addressed. He does still have that pomposity. He does still have that showman's flair. He does still need the spotlight. These are all issues that are going to be addressed not only in Iron Man 2, but in Avengers Age of Ultron, Civil War, and other movies. This is great storytelling and I think that's part of what made the MCU succeed so much is that this movie is rooted in such great storytelling and launches the character so successfully that you want to follow his arc. You want to follow what Tony Stark does, movie after movie after movie. I know it's not groundbreaking to say that this is the linchpin to the success of the MCU, but it is in the sense that not only is it the first movie, but you love this character so much that the momentum of this movie carries you, and certainly carried the audience, at least into the Avengers, where you start to meet more characters, you start liking these characters more. Iron Man and Robert Downey Jr. are the reasons why, more than any other factor, Phase 1 of the MCU succeeded, in my opinion, because when you look at the other movies, some of them are okay, some of them are pretty good, I don't think any of them are as good as this movie, and I think that they were able to coast off of the goodwill that this movie earned to get to the Avengers, which then launched goodwill for several other characters and kept things afloat. Looking back, though, it's also interesting to note that we had to be warned not to leave our seats back in 2008, because while a post-credits thing is just an assumption, especially for any superhero movie at this point, uh, it was not a given that people would stick around through five or ten minutes of credits to see what happened next. But Iron Man did have an in credits scene, one of the most famous in credits scenes in Marvel history, uh, maybe in movie history. Tony returns home and finds... Nick Fury, the director of S.H.I.E.L.D., played by Samuel L. Jackson, and he has a very important message to deliver. You think you're the only superhero in the world? Mr. Stark, you've become part of a bigger universe. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. Maybe this was common knowledge. I don't actually remember, because we'll talk in a minute about the fact that this was sort of the early days of a much wider net for movie news and tracking these things, but I don't remember there being a absolute certain thing in place at that time that Marvel was going to do a full-blown Avengers. We knew, of course, that there was going to be another Hulk movie coming out later that summer, but the idea of this being an interconnected universe and the idea that this was going to be chapter one in a multi-chapter story, not just of Iron Man, but of several other superheroes, I certainly don't remember knowing that going in. I do remember thinking, though, when he said the Avengers, in my head going over like, well, okay, Captain America, Thor, who wants to see a movie about them? Sometimes it's great to be wrong. I will continue my look back at Iron Man in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving the goals that you want to achieve? I know a lot of times I'm so focused on doing everything out there that I need to do that I'm not worried about myself. Mental health is a very important thing and it's critically important that you seek out the help that you need for your specific needs. BetterHelp is a service that will assess your personal needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist online. And usually you can start your communication with these therapists in under 48 hours. Now this is not a crisis line, this is not self-help, this is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise that may not be available in many local areas and BetterHelp is a resource that is available Worldwide. Plus, you can log in anytime and securely message your therapist 24 hours a day, seven days a week. With BetterHelp, you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses from the counselor you're matched to, and you can schedule weekly video or phone appointments. You don't have to go to waiting rooms like you do with traditional therapy, it's all done online. BetterHelp's also committed to making sure the match that you get is right for you, which means that you can change counselors anytime you want. For free and it's more affordable than traditional therapy and financial aid is available for those who need it. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a better life today and you can visit their website right now and read the testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com movies that's BetterHelp h-e-l-p and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states to meet the need. And there's a special offer for viewers and listeners to this show: all my Movies listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to BetterHelp.com/movies. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com/movies. And I want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's show. You've been called the Da Vinci of our time. What do you say to that? Absolutely ridiculous. I don't paint. And what do you say to your other nickname, the Merchant of Death? That's not bad. It's easy now to look at Iron Man's success as an inevitability, but that was not the case when the movie was in production in 2007 and 2008. And it's so interesting to go back and look at interviews that Jon Favreau was doing while the movie was going through post-production, when he was really focused on the day-to-day decision-making that you would expect of a director at that time who has lost all perspective on the big picture of his movie. This could be anything from a flop to a, a moderate single. I honestly don't know, I mean, I'm sort of the worst person to handicap that kind of thing right now. I'm in the worst worst seat in the house. I'm I'm right, in the, I'm right in the thick of things. I don't know where we are. For his part, Robert Downey Jr. seemed to enjoy his shot at playing a superhero and took his co-star Sean Tube's advice and savored the moment. I just said, wow, man, what a cool deal. What a cool suit, what a great crew, what a blast. Yeah, Come on now. Tony Stark. While it's probable that neither Favreau nor anybody really involved with Iron Man knew exactly what they had on their hands, it did pass one key early test. In July of 2007, despite the fact that there wasn't a lot of footage to show, Favreau and the cast of the movie took Iron Man to what would soon become a mecca for comic book movie fans and the key launching point for so many other films in the next decade plus San Diego Comic-Con. Comic-Con was going through its own universe building at the time. In 2001, attendance at the annual comic book convention was reported at just under 50,000. Six years later in 2007, the year that Iron Man showed up, Attendance was reported at 125,000 in just six years. And this was largely fueled by a growing online media industry that was expanding from a few insider sites that had all the market share to other people that were launching into the space, driven by the growing presence of YouTube. The footage that Favreau showed from Iron Man was a huge hit and bloggers, YouTubers, media types blasted it all around the world. So all of a sudden, this successful first test of Iron Man didn't just happen for a few thousand fans in Hall H, it was blasted around the world. And Jon Favreau seemed to be aware that they had passed this early test and that their success at Comic-Con might have launched Iron Man off of the B-list. After Comic-Con, we showed the footage, people got on board and got excited about it. And now it's being spoken of in the same breath as like Batman and Indiana Jones. I mean, we weren't part of that conversation. Over a year after it began filming, Iron Man opened on May 2, 2008 in the United States, staking a claim to the early May date that would become an almost annual tradition for the Marvel Cinematic Universe and would help to push the beginning of the summer movie season from Memorial Day all the way back to early May. After all the doubts and the risks, Marvel's decision to bet their future on the shoulders of a lesser-known superhero, paid off big. Iron Man turned to gold over the weekend with a $100 million take. The film had the 10th biggest opening of all time, and the fourth biggest for a superhero movie. Iron Man was also a hit with critics garnering almost universal praise, including a four-star review from Roger Ebert, but it was also a hit with audiences who gave it an A Cinema score which foretold the box office success that it would become. As Favreau nervously predicted, Iron Man was in the same conversation as Batman and the Dark Knight. It actually was the second highest grossing film of the summer of 2008, just edging out Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and behind the phenomenal success of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. But the fact that Iron Man made more money than Indiana Jones was an almost impossibility, something that people would have thought ludicrous just a few months earlier. Iron Man would also go on to gross over half a billion dollars worldwide, establishing the Marvel name brand that would take it to phenomenal success with later entries in the franchise. Robert Downey Jr. had a huge summer of 2008. It began with Iron Man and it ended with Tropic Thunder, a role that would earn him an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. After crawling through hell and back, Robert Downey Jr. found himself at the top of the A-list, and within a few years, he was the most successful and highest paid actor in Hollywood. It's tough to get into hypotheticals, but it's hard to really say what would have happened if Iron Man hadn't worked, because when you look past it into the summer of 2008, the next Marvel film was The Incredible Hulk, which was fine with critics, and it did okay at the box office, but it didn't really do a whole lot to advance the Marvel name. I don't think it would have resuscitated the brand, especially if Iron Man had underperformed either financially or critically before it. I think it's very likely that if something had gone wrong with Iron Man, if he brought on a different director or a different star, if things just hadn't clicked the way that they did, and then the Incredible Hulk had come out, that the MCU as we know it may not have launched. And that would have been very sad news for comic book fans, for movie fans, and especially for theater owners. But Iron Man didn't fizzle. And we sit here today in the middle of a cultural landscape that is largely shaped by the success of the two big superhero films of summer 2008, The Dark Knight and Iron Man. These two films have defined 15 years of blockbuster cinema and began a superhero trend that continues strong to this day. And on the back end of Marvel's success, it's sometimes easy to forget where they started, with a forgotten character, an untested director, a risky leading man, and the faith of a studio and comic book fans everywhere. As always, I like to go over the special features that are on the Blu-ray that I own. I think this was the first to market Iron Man Blu-ray. This is one of the earlier Blu-rays, so they were still kind of testing out the technology or showing off a little bit. So it has one of those menus that takes like 15 to 30 seconds to cycle between screens. Uh, It's quaint, but a little bit annoying. Although a lot of Blu-rays now don't have any special features. So I'll take one with a menu that's a little too involved. It's actually two discs and it has a lot of great stuff about both the character and the making of the film. One of them is a documentary called The Invincible Iron Man, which goes into the comic book origins of the character, not only the beginning of Tony Stark's story, but also stuff that would be explored in later films, including Demon in a Bottle and the Extremist storyline. Before Vietnam became a disaster, the idea of, uh, you know, a, 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 an arms merchant was not by itself a bad thing. There are also a lot of deleted scenes, and you can see why most of these were cut, although they are interesting. You see Tony losing millions of dollars at roulette in the early part of the film. There's also something that's actually very similar to a scene that ended up in The Dark Knight, where Tony covers his first foray in his Iron Man armor by throwing a party in Dubai, which explains why he was in the middle of that country and how he was able to fly there in his suit. It fills in a plot hole, though it's ultimately not necessary, though we did lose a cameo from Ghostface Killa when this scene was deleted. Oh, stop! Hey. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm sorry, I still got your plane. Oh the no, plane. no, no, and I got it's your Bentley. You so just bring it back full of gas and uh, everything's yes. Hi. That's for you. The highlight of these features is a documentary that runs about an hour and 50 minutes called I Am Iron Man that is a really exhaustive and interesting look at the process of making this film. I've mentioned it a few times in the episode before, but it is so interesting to see everybody working on this movie and having no idea not only what this movie would would become, but also what they were about to launch. You see the origins of this movie, which is a handful of people in this wing of the Marvel offices uh, before they can expand and go elsewhere. This was the birth of what would become the MCU, what would launch theme park attractions and billions and billions of dollars of box office revenue, and it starts with 10 people and one director in a room. It's crazy to think about just how much it's grown. You also get looks at the special effects of the movie. You get a look at the shooting of the movie, and you also get a look at something that I mentioned in my Godfather episode when we were talking about the restoration, which is DI, Digital Intermediate, when they go through the movie and they're adjusting the picture along with... John Favreau and the director of photography, Matthew Libatique. If you were wondering what I was talking about in that previous episode about how movies are color graded nowadays, this is a really interesting little peek into that process. See the blue on the left there? Maybe we can use that as a guide to try to swing it. I mean, okay. All right. And it's hard to really read it on the, on the glass. There's also a special feature that's about half an hour long that focuses just on the visual effects of Iron Man. You get Robert Downey Jr. screen test, as well as some rehearsal footage of Jeff Bridges and Robert Downey Jr., which does show how they were making up a lot of their interaction as they went along, or at least off-script. Like, you know, the natural thing, when we were in that close proximity, you went at me, my knee is right there for your balls, yeah. but that seems almost, when anybody gets hit in the balls, it's kind of a comedic, it's a comedic thing, <laughs> yes. which I'm not sure we want to do. No. Yeah. There's also something that takes me back, which is a story from the Onion News Network about the release of the film. Controversy is sweeping the fan community today following the announcement that Paramount Pictures is planning to adapt the beloved trailer into a feature length motion picture and you get several looks at the trailers for the movie including the original teaser trailer and the theatrical trailer for the film and that wraps up my look at 2008's Iron Man again a landmark piece of superhero filmmaking and one that I can't believe every year I can't believe we're 13 years away from it being released that is pretty crazy Thank you so much for watching. Stay tuned. Next week, we're going to be looking at another May release that I think you're going to enjoy. As always, don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel. Like this video. It helps us grow. And don't forget to subscribe to the audio version of the podcast. That also helps the podcast grow. And please check out the Schmodown Entertainment Network for everything Schmodown related. We are in the midst of the season and I've got a lot of great matches coming up, so please check that out. And of course, don't forget to come back here next week for another edition of All My Movies. We'll be looking at another film but until then it's time to go back on the show thanks for watching